God, we thank you for the good news that we got to sing a lot about today. The good news of, of who you are and what you've done for us. The good news of who you are and what we've done by turning from you and ignoring you. And the good news that your, your mercy and grace is available to each one of us right now. And Lord, we pray that we would be open to receiving what you have for us today. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just to kind of let you know where we're going, um, we finished the book of Judges, and we're going to spend two weeks on, on the story of Samuel. Uh, Samuel was the last judge in Israel, and so we're going to take two weeks to look at his story as Israel tran, uh, trans, transitions from this time of judges into uh, the time of Saul and David and, and the monarchy. And just talk a little bit about what happens in that transition time. And then after that, we're going to uh, be studying the book of Philippians. So um, the last two years, we've done Revelation and we've done Judges. We're going to do something a little more straightforward. <laughs> we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is uh, one of my favorite books, uh, a book that really changed my life when I was in college and looking forward to diving into to that book together. Uh, but we spent the first part of this year in, in the book of Judges and really uh, what, what a book I told you at the beginning of the year that I really wasn't looking forward to preaching through that book. It was not something I, I was really anticipating liking at all, and I, I did. I really got so much out of that personally, and I think for us as, as a church, as we think about the message it has for us in our culture, but it, it really is a hard book to read and to digest, right? Um, it's a book about Israel's failures, about their disobedience to God. Um, it's a book about depravity and violence, and it kind of starts out okay in those first couple chapters, but it just gets darker and darker and darker all the way until the end. It was not a good time in Israel's history. But the Bible tells us that in the middle of that spiritual darkness, that depravity, that disobedience, and all of that violence, there were some other things happening too. That darkness in Israel wasn't the only thing that was happening. It wasn't the only story that was being told. God was still at work. And there were men and women who still loved the Lord, who looked to him and who sought him with all of their heart. And it is through these quiet and faithful people, this remnant of people who are faithful to God in the midst of that dark time, that through them, God brings about his purposes in the world. We don't know all of their names, but the Bible does tell us about a couple of them. In particular, two women who lived during the time of Judges. One of them was named Ruth. We aren't going to hear Ruth's story today, but tucked away in the Old Testament is a short little book that tells her story, and Ruth's uh, story begins with the words, in the days that the judges ruled, and then goes to tell us the story of Ruth, who was um, a woman who wasn't even an Israelite, but was a woman who showed kindness, loving kindness, hesed kindness to her mother-in-law. And because of that kindness and the kindness of a man named Boaz, God uses them, and Ruth becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David. 
In the days that the judges ruled in Israel, in that dark time of violence and disobedience, Ruth was gentle and loving and kind, and God noticed, and he blessed her. And there's another story, a story that we're going to learn about today, about a woman named Hannah. So if you would turn with me to her story, which is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's towards the beginning of your Bible. There's Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, as we begin today. It says this, There was a certain man from Rephaim, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his own town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. And now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, and Eli thought that she was drunk. And he said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Hannah and her husband Elkanah were faithful to go to the temple, to the tabernacle, to pray and to worship. 
And the book of Judges shows that this was, this was not normal in Israel during this time. Elkanah and Hannah are rare people in Israel's history. So rare, in fact, that when Eli sees Hannah praying, he thinks that she's drunk. He's never seen a woman praying like this there in the temple. But Elkanah and Hannah are people who remember the commands of the Lord. They go to the tabernacle to worship and to offer sacrifices to God. And Hannah would go there to pray and to bring to God the deepest desires of her heart. The time when the judges ruled was a very dark time in Israel's history. It was a time of disobedience and depravity and violence, but that wasn't the only thing that was happening. God was still at work. And in the stories of Ruth and Elkanah and Hannah, they remind us that there were still people in Israel who were living faithfully to God, people who worshiped and who prayed. Some people who were just quietly going about living their lives, loving their family, and serving and worshiping God. And after the story of of Micah and the Levites and, and the Levites' concubine at the end of Judges, isn't that refreshing to you? To know that in Israel, during that dark and terrible time, that there were still people who were going to the temple, who were simply living their quiet lives, loving their family, loving their neighbors, and seeking to worship and to honor God. God noticed Elkanah, and he noticed the desires of Hannah's heart, and he blessed Hannah, and he gave her a son named Samuel. And Samuel is the last judge in Israel. If you remember, the judges in Israel were these local tribal leaders who God would raise up to lead Israel to defeat their enemies. We had Ehud and Deborah and Gideon, and finally the story of Samson. And Samuel is the last judge of Israel that God raises up in this particular kind of way. He's the last judge before God finally relents and gives Israel what they say they want, which is a king. And we see in Samuel's story that like the judges before him, God raises him up to help help Israel conquer their enemies around them. But what we're also going to see is that Samuel, unlike the other judges, he's not just a military or a political leader. We see in Samuel's life that he is also a spiritual leader, too. He acts as a priest, and he acts as a prophet to the people of Israel. Samuel understands that his role as a leader in Israel is not just to help Israel conquer their external enemies— Samuel recognizes that Israel's biggest problem is in their own hearts. And he knows that as a leader, he needs to turn the hearts of people back to God. So in the book of Judges, we read about these these big and brash and bold kind of leaders. And God uses them, and he does a great work in them. He brings about his purposes through them. But what we saw at the end of Judges is that these big and bold victories that that the judges accomplish, these big and bold leaders do not bring about spiritual change in Israel. By the very end of the book of Judges, it tells us that uh, this 500-year or so period, at the end of the book of Judges, Israel is empty. There is no spiritual life or vitality in Israel at all. Samuel knows that his biggest challenge for Israel is not the external enemies, the Philistines and the Canaanites. Samuel knows that Israel's biggest problem is their own heart. And so Samuel begins to 
seek transformation for the people of Israel, to initiate some spiritual changes to to the people of Israel. So Samuel begins to make intentional and purposeful changes in the spiritual life of Israel at that time. And that's what I want to talk about for, for the rest of our time today, about these actions that Hannah and Samuel take and how they're different from the actions of the judges and how the actions of Hannah and Samuel begin to make long-term changes in the life of Israel. I recently heard um, Andy Crouch, who's an author that I like. He offers a metaphor to, to change, to cultural change, that I think is helpful here. He talks about the difference between carbonation and fermentation. There are two different ways to get fizz in your drinks. One is the act of carbonation, and the other is fermentation. We have very recently invented this new, very modern action called carbonation, where we inject carbon dioxide into a pressurized container so that when you open that container, that liquid comes alive with fizz and gives us that refreshing, fizzy feeling when we drink it. The other way that we can get this is through fermentation. And fermentation isn't an action, it's a process. It's a very old process. People have been fermenting drinks for thousands of years. It's very old. And it's not a a modern scientific action of injecting carbon dioxide into a liquid. It's actually organic. It's, It's a process that happens when you put yeast into a sugary liquid and the yeast feeds on the sugars and starches. And then the byproduct of that yeast eating that sugar is then carbon dioxide. I don't know how any of that works. I did all of that on Google, okay? So I don't know any how that works, but that's how those two things work. One of them is fast and very new. One of them is old and very slow. Two different ways to create carbon, to create this bubble or fizz in your drink. And one of the differences between these two processes or these actions is that carbonation actually doesn't change the actual makeup of the drink. It's just something that's added to it. But the process of fermentation is actually something that changes the molecular structure of the substance that is fermenting. I want to suggest to you that this this is a helpful metaphor to describe the difference between the action and the leadership of the judges and the actions of Hannah and the leadership of Samuel. The judges are like carbonation added to a drink. It's quick, it's flashy, it gets the job done, but in the end, it doesn't last very long, and it doesn't change anything. And this is what we see in the leadership of the judges. Their leadership is flashy and powerful. They get a job done. They win victories. But there is no change in the life of Israel. There is no spiritual transformation that's taking place in their community. Their actions are only working on a surface level, and that's satisfying for a while, but after a while, it falls flat. But there are some qualities in the actions of people like Hannah and Samuel that actually begin to ferment and to make real change in the life of Israel. And we're introduced to some of these ingredients of spiritual fermentation in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel. And so that's what I want to spend my time on today. What are the ingredients in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel for healthy spiritual fermentation? And the first is this. 
patient faithfulness. Hannah is a woman of patient faithfulness. She's a woman who has experienced a great deal of pain and grief in her life. She has a rival who persistently taunts her. She's not able to have children, but in spite of those struggles and pain, she faithfully returns with her husband every year to the tabernacle and earnestly and fervently seeks God in prayer. It's a quiet work. No one but God notices, but she does it for years. Hannah demonstrates patient faithfulness, and through her patient faithfulness, God gives her a son named Samuel, who leads Israel to spiritual transformation. Patient faithfulness is one of the essential ingredients to spiritual fermentation. There was a book that came out a few years ago called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And Alan Kreider in this book is asking the question how the Christian church grew in, from the first century until about the year 400 to a group of maybe just a few hundred people to millions of people and really taking over the entire Roman Empire. And what he argues in his book is that the reason the Christian church grew is because in their life they demonstrated the virtue of patience. The early bishops and pastors in the early church teach a lot. If you look at their readings, they teach a lot about patience. Because the early church had no power or influence in Rome, no representation in government. Often they were persecuted for not going along with Rome's idolatry. And so these early teachers and leaders of the church taught them to be patient, to endure suffering, to continue to pray to continue to love their enemies and to turn the other cheek, just like Jesus told them to do, and just like Jesus modeled for us. And it was through their patience, through their patient faithfulness, that the people of the Roman Empire began to notice that this group of people lived a different kind of life, a better, higher quality of life than was exemplified in the rest of the empire, and people began more and more to become Christians as they observed their patient faithfulness. This happened slowly, and it happened quietly, just like fermentation, which is a long and slow process. Ingredient number two is to focus on relationships over results. Relationships over results. I want to take a minute here to compare Samuel with Samson. There are a lot of interesting parallels in the lives of Samuel and Samson. They were both conceived miraculously to women who were not able to have children. They were both committed by someone else to be a Nazarite. That was not of their own choosing, but the angel told Samson's mom that Samson would be a Nazarite, and Hannah committed committed Samuel to that. They were both marked off at birth with a special purpose. But we see in their stories that their personalities and styles were very different. Samson offered carbonation, and a lot of it. His life was exciting. 
During Samson's time as a judge, I can just imagine the people of Israel always just wondering, what is this guy going to do next, right? Just constantly checking the news or however they got information. What is Samson going to do next? It was exciting and it was effective and God did bless him. There was good work that God did through Samson, but we see in his life that it was a shallow work. Samson did get results But in his life, we see in his life that he did not value relationships. There was no relationship with God, no relationship with other people. This is a word that we've heard now from Alan yesterday and from Paul this morning that we didn't plan all of this. But this is the word for the day, it seems like, that we are called to relationships. Samson, he doesn't give any care or honor to his parents. His relationship with God is a very flippant thing. He doesn't gather anyone around him to help him at all. He's alone doing all of his stuff. Samson's leadership was like carbonation. It changed things for a time. It was very dramatic and exciting, but it didn't produce any lasting change in Israel. But as Samuel grew up, something different was happening. Listen to these two different ways that the writer of Judges and the writer of Samuel, the way they describe um, how the two of them grew up. I thought this was really interesting. Judges chapter 13 through 24 says this, The boy Samson grew up, and God blessed him. 1 Samuel 2.26, Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. The Lord was with Samson. The Lord blessed him, did great things through Samson. But Samson's life, but Samuel's life was characterized by something different than Samson's was. It was characterized by meaningful relationships, first with God and second with people. Samuel grew up in favor with God and with people. And so not only did Samuel bless him, but in his life, he blessed those around him as well. We see throughout the story of Samuel that people begin to learn that when Samuel speaks, that we need to listen. That this is a man that we can trust. This is a man who is for God and who is for Israel. We can listen to him and we can trust him. And so we see at the very end of their life, Samuel and Samson at their death, it's a very different story. At the very end of Samson's death, once again, his death is a dramatic thing. Lots of excitement there at this huge party with the Philistines standing between these two columns all alone. No one there with him. And he asks the Lord, give me my strength one last time. And he pushes the columns apart and they come tumbling down. And God does this one last incredible thing through Samson. The story about Samuel's death is completely different. It's so understated. It simply says this. And then Samuel died. And all Israel gathered and mourned for him. Samuel, from the beginning of his life, grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. One of the essential Ingredients for healthy spiritual fermentation, a change that lasts and grows, is an emphasis on relationships with God and with one another over whatever results we think might be important. And third is this. 
Learning to listen and respond to God. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 says this. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. And it goes on to tell this story that uh, if you grew up in Sunday school at all, you may remember it. Samuel was there um, in, in the temple serving alongside Eli. And one night the Lord uh, comes to him and says, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel thinks it's Eli. And so he goes to Eli's room. Eli, what do you need? Eli says, I didn't say anything. Go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed and he hears these words, Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up from his bed and he goes to Eli. Eli, what do you need? I didn't say anything. Goes back to bed again, and he hears the word, Samuel, Samuel, and he goes to Eli. Eli, what do you need? Eli says, Eli then realizes that maybe it's the Lord who's speaking to Samuel. And so Eli gives Samuel some instructions. He says, Samuel, the next time you hear your name spoken, simply say, here I am, Lord. And so that's what Samuel does. He goes back to his room. He hears Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel says, here I am, Lord. As I read this story this week, it was, it was different from my, my memory. I remembered God then calling Samuel to be a prophet. But that wasn't what happened. Instead, God speaks a word of judgment on Eli, his mentor. And the next day, we read this exchange between Samuel and Eli, where Eli asks Samuel, what happened last night? What did the Lord say to you? And Samuel, with this really tender heart, doesn't want to give bad news to Eli. But Eli insists, and Samuel eventually obeys the Lord, and he gives Eli the word that was spoken to him. Lord, I am here, and I am ready to listen to you. We could certainly hear a whole sermon about this one story, but I just want to point out two things about learning to listen and respond to God. It's first to be ready and available. The word, here I am. Lord, I, I am here to listen to your word to me through your scriptures, through other, other people, through the work of your Holy Spirit in my life. Lord, here I am. I'm ready to listen to you. And then the second thing is like Samuel, to be willing to obey even when it's really hard. Samuel has to go, and the very first response that he has to have to the Lord's word to him is to go and to tell Eli a really bad news, that his sons are going to die. But Samuel is faithful, and he is, he is obedient. So these are three ingredients from examples in this story of Hannah and Samuel of healthy spiritual fermentation, ways that we as a church in our culture be can begin to see good and healthy change. Patient faithfulness, prioritizing relationships over results, and learning to listen to God. All of these things are slow. And we really prefer carbonation, right? Carbonation is fast. It's quick. It's refreshing. And we like leaders and programs who can come in and get results. Leader who will come in and do a good job and get us the results that we want. And that's fine as far as it goes, but it really doesn't go very far. Like a can of Sprite that's opened up, it's refreshing at first, but it goes flat really, really fast. 
Fermentation is a slow process. It takes days, weeks, months, sometimes years to do its work. And most of the time that fermentation is happening, you actually can't even see that it's happening. You can't observe it. It's too slow to even observe what's happening. But underneath the surface of that dough or that liquid, there is a powerful force that is changing and transforming that liquid. Jesus was a fan of fermentation over carbonation, for sure. If we were ever in doubt that this slow process of fermentation is God's way of doing things, we just need to look at Jesus himself. Jesus, the creator of the world, knows that good and lasting transformation takes time and patience. It takes investing in relationships over results, and it takes time of being quiet and listening to the Father. One of the ways that Jesus describes the kingdom of God that he is bringing is like yeast working through a batch of dough. His parable of the kingdom of God is fermentation. It's that yeast eating that sugar that causes the dough over time slowly to change and to rise. And that's why he compared the growth of the kingdom of God to yeast in a batch of dough, because it's slow change, but deep and meaningful, real transformation that Jesus is after that happens slowly over time. We see Jesus in his life clearly investing in relationships more than results. We see him working and taking action. He does things. He, he has a plan. He knows where he's going. But he does so patiently, and he does so slowly, and he does it in, in relationship with people. Jesus took those 12 and invested in them slowly and deeply. And it seems like any time that his ministry started to feel like carbonation, he squashed it real fast. That's not the kind of change, that's not the kind of results that we're looking for. He knew that the kind of change that he wanted to bring in the world was not going to come through huge crowds that, uh, that, that were really flashy in the moment and then fell flat. It was going to be the kind of change that lasted longer. And so he invested in these relationships with these 12 men who, minus the one who betrayed him, would eventually bring the message and life of the gospel to the whole world. We know that Jesus certainly knew the importance of learning to listen to the Father. Over and over again in his ministry, when there was a lot of ministry to do, a lot of people who needed healed, a lot of people who needed to hear the message of the gospel, a lot of people who needed him, he often took time away to go and to pray and to listen to the Father's voice. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus never did anything that was not a response to the voice of his Father. So I just want to pause as we finish here and, and to, to challenge you. Uh, what is one of the healthy ingredients of spiritual fermentation that you need to begin to inject into your life, to add into your life? Is it faithfulness? Is it relationships? Is it learning to listen to God? Let's just pause for a minute and to be, to be quiet and to ask the Lord to show you which of these he may be speaking to you right now. Lord, we confess to you today that we very often do not like the slow and patient work that you want to do in us and in our church. Lord, we confess that we would like to see things go faster and quicker 
and more effective. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to be patiently faithful to you, not turning to the left or to the right, but patiently walking in your way and trusting that you are at work. Lord, I ask that you would help us to prioritize in our life relationship with people, that we would realize that others need us and the gifts that we offer and that we need others and the gifts that they offer to us. And so, Lord, that we would move toward relationship and friendship with one another. Lord, and we, I pray that we would learn to listen to you, that we would be available, that we would say, here I am, Lord, and that we would be willing to obey whatever it is that you say to us. And God, as we do these things, help us to trust you in the work that you are doing by your spirit, through your people. Amen.